You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I'm your host, Miles Lassiter, founder and investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired, to be a founder, or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Damola Ogundepe is the founder and CEO of Civic Eagle, a public policy data and software company, helping build a limitless world with intelligent and useful public policy data. Damola was born in Nigeria and grew up in Minnesota, where he attended the University of Minnesota and later founded Civic Eagle. I'm an investor in the company and have been a fan of what they're building. Since 2018, they've been a remote-only company, which we talk about in the episode, They've grown by three times in the last year, raised over $3 million, got 22 people in the company. We also discuss what makes a great founder, how to make decisions, including a pivot, what building a remote-only company is like and how to do it so you're reaching for greatness, starting employee resource groups early on, and how investors say no, and how they should keep the door open if they want to, and much more. I think you'll enjoy it, so please stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Miles. Yeah, it's wonderful to connect. I'm really curious when you knew you were an entrepreneur. Um, it's a, a funny story. Um, it was, I actually remember the moment it was, um, I think I was around like 10 or 11 years old and I had started this lawn mowing service for my neighbors and it was going pretty well. And another kid in the neighborhood that was maybe a year or two younger than me, um, came over to my parents' house and asked to rake our leaves. And it dawned on me, I was like, well, don't rake my leaves, rake, you know, Miss Beverly's leaves, who was our next door neighbor, and I'll give you $10. But she was going to pay me 15. So he raked our neighbor's leaves. I gave him 10, went over to Miss Beverly, collected 15 for no work. And I was like, huh, this is this might be really interesting. Um, my mom put it shut that down after about I don't know a few weeks, but uh, but that was the first time I realized I wanted to be an entrepreneur. That's a great story. I love that. So you paid him first. You actually took some risk. It sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I, I had you know maybe like thirty or forty bucks. Yeah, and I paid him first, and then I went over because I didn't want to you know go over to Miss Beverly, and then you know I was trying to be a little bit sneaky about it, <laughs> so I didn't want to go over to. <laughs> Go over to her house and let her know this other kid was going to be the person raking raking her leaves. So I was like, okay, go ahead and rake rake those leaves and come over. I'll give you ten bucks and and gave him ten bucks and and you know later on that that afternoon went and got my my fifteen. So yeah, pay him first. And how do you think those early entrepreneurial experiences translate forward into high tech startup today? I think the 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 primary thing is just identifying opportunity and you know, leaning into it when, when it, when it's apparent, I could have overthought the situation or, or, you know, when I was, you know, a kid, but I just was like, Oh, this is interesting. And this is an interesting opportunity. You know, obviously as a 10 year old, you're not thinking like that, but, you know, looking back that that was probably what was going on through going on in my mind and just saying, you know what, I'm just going to, you know, take on this challenge or take on this opportunity and, and lean into it and not really hesitate too much. Just kind of trust your gut and your instinct. And I think that translates into, into, you know, being an entrepreneur as an adult. And you originally jumped in, you trusted your gut on one model, which was more B2C and it transitioned over time. Was that also a gut-driven decision or how did you decide to pivot the company? 
you know, starting the company was a starting Civic Eagle was definitely a gut driven decision. It was me seeing a, a challenge and an opportunity to build a, you know, an app, like you, like you mentioned, we were B2C before we made a pivot in, in 2018 for a couple of years. And, but the pivot I think was more, was a combination of information from the marketplace, talking, talking with organizations and, and with investors and kind of fine tuning the idea. And then the jump itself was, was gut driven, like the timing of the jump. But the evidence, the information, right, was just kind of collecting, collecting, collecting information, collecting data, realizing that there was an opportunity and then saying, all right, you know what, we're going to abandon completely what we've been doing. And we're going to jump full force into this pivot, into this other thing and going B2B and working with organizations and kind of the timing and the the rate in which we did it, the speed in which we went and just jumped in and, and, you know, went this completely other direction without hedging or hesitation. That was definitely gut driven. Yeah, we sometimes have this model of the brain as being, you know, rational on one side and emotional on the other, and you could gather data and make decisions without connecting with emotion. But what you're describing is collecting all of this information, the analytical part, coming to some options, but really having to use emotion and gut to make that decision, which I think is what's backed up by recent scientific evidence about if you remove the connection to your emotional side, you're unable to actually choose. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I mean, you need the information, the data, and you have to be able to process that information quickly. And everybody has a point of a conviction that's different, right? For you to then make a, make the, the, the most optimal decision. I think for entrepreneurs, your point of conviction, especially early on, is a lot lower. That threshold is lower where you need less data to reach that point of conviction and then make that decision. But you still need it. You still need that information and that data. And it's, and it's a combination of those two things. Again, early on, probably less data, less information because you want to move quickly and, and, and move fast. And then as you, you know, become a more seasoned entrepreneur, your company becomes more mature. You want more evidence, more data before you make, you know, you make bigger decisions. But 100%, I think that the combination of taking in information, taking in data, being analytical, processing that information quickly and efficiently, and then making a decision without hesitation and with full force is what makes a good entrepreneur. And on that pivot, did you ever wonder if you were heading in the right direction or did it continue to seem right as soon as you made that decision? I, I woke up this morning wondering if I made the right decision. <laughs> I think really good entrepreneurs are constantly paranoid. And I, and I think that's the case for me where I'm, I'm always not, it's not in second guessing necessarily, but it's, it's questioning sometimes and at times, you know, did you make the right decision and, and looking back retroactively and, and looking for pieces and clues and, and evidence to, to support the decision, to, to counter the decision, things you can learn from. But I'm in a constant state of just, you know, kind of challenging the decisions that I've made. It doesn't mean that I reverse course or, or like I'm not convicted or anything like that, but there's a, there's a certain part of me that's, that's constantly paranoid and making sure like, okay, was, was this the right decision? Looking at the evidence, looking at the information and kind of doing that retroactive analysis but yeah, I, I, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I think I'm always kind of paranoid about, about the decisions. So you think paranoia is an important attribute of founders. What, what else makes for a great founder? Leadership. And there's a lot of ways that we can unpack that. The one thing that I've realized that is my job above, above all else is motivating people to get behind me and allow them and allow and, for, and to inspire them to allow 
my leadership, right? A lot of people, you included, and, and you know, my employees, my team, my investors, they trust me and they trust my leadership and they allow me to lead, right? It's, it's, a, it's you know, the thing that I thank my team for every quarter, we, we do a quarterly offsite since the pandemic, they've been remote, but do a quarterly offsite. And, and I end every offsite thanking them for allowing me to lead them because it is a choice on their end. But I think being a, being a really good leader, being a strong leader, inspiring the people that are getting behind you and, 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 and really actually holding your hand um, through this journey is, is by far the most important thing. And early on, you didn't have much money in the business. The founders, co-founders, if I recall correctly, really weren't earning much. So I'm curious, how did you sell a vision when there aren't customers and there isn't money? How do you do that? If by much money, you mean no money, um, then yes, that, that was the case. And I think that it's one of the reasons I'm so grateful. I have so much gratitude for, for people is because they, that were early supporters is because they supported me and my idea and my vision, and it became our idea and our vision. And when there's nothing there, when it's just you as a person, and it's just what's in your head and, and kind of the future that you see yourself wanting to build with other people, it means a lot. And I don't know, I, to be honest, I, I don't know what I did right necessarily to convince a lot of smart people to partner with me and to believe in, in this thing. I, I, I want to say it was authenticity and, and grace, but yeah, I, honestly, I don't know. I don't know. And, and, I, and I'm grateful for that, for, for people believing early, like super, super early on. We're still early, but you know, in, at the very beginning, um, we had absolutely nothing to write that first check or to become that first employee with a lower salary, you know, under market salary um, or no salary at all, really at times. Um, and I think it's just part of it is, is, is me and, 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 and kind of wanting to inspire people and getting them to believe in this future we are building. And part of it is also the future that we're working on building, right. And, and the actual impact that we're talking about having in the world and, and, and building for the world, collective belief in that vision. So I don't know, to be honest. Well, share some of that vision. Let people judge for themselves here. Yeah, at Civic Eagle, we are a public policy data and AI software company. So what that means when, when we talk about public policy data is, you know, there's a lot of different types of data and public policy is, a, a, you know, a category of that data. That's legislation, regulation, statutes, laws, academic research, right? And a lot of things fall under this kind of public policy data umbrella. And we fundamentally believe that there's a lot to be learned from this public policy data by ingesting it, normalizing and structuring this data. And then we, we build software tools for different, pro different products and different market for, for different software products for, uh, for different markets. And the one that we started with was the, the policy advocacy industry, uh, where we built a legislative intelligence and collaboration software product, utilizing legislation and regulatory data, at the federal and state level. And kind of our, our vision as we continue to build out this company and continue to, to ingest and process and normalize this public policy data is that we believe that by understanding the mechanisms of public policy data, the patterns, the historical context, being able to predict how public policy can have an impact on communities, so on and so forth, uh, we believe that we can create a more inclusive and limitless future. 
So our fundamental, again, our fundamental belief is that public policy data will play a role in, in, in the work that we do, not just in the creation of public policy, but again, understanding it and creating products that help people, organizations, companies, institutions get a better understanding of public policy. And again, all of those kind of data categories falling underneath that umbrella. Yeah, so that, that's the feature that we're, we're building. And so by enabling institutions and people to better understand public policy, and the policymaking process, you hope that there will be better policy outcomes. Correct. We believe that if, if there's more transparency, if there's a greater level of understanding, that more inclusive policy outcomes will come up, will arise. Um, I, I think we've seen that in different sectors and categories when you look at, at, at data. Obviously, data is, is sometimes used in very for lack of a better word, poor ways. Um, I think a lot of, of the companies that we see in the, that are publicly traded, I'll, I'll just keep it at that, have used data in, in kind of net negative ways. But we want to use public policy data and the understanding of public policy data for net positive ways, for inclusivity, for creating a more limit, for, for creating a limitless um, future for innovation. But yeah, that's our fundamental belief. And how do you think about matching or selecting your customers. If you were to work with an advocacy organization that was working towards a policy goal that you didn't agree with personally, is that important to you? How do you think about that? We are nonpartisan, but having shared values or at least working with making sure organizations aren't against our values of creating that more inclusive future is important to us. And, and we, you know, have a we have a methodology that we enact to kind of assess values alignment or values misalignment to make sure that we're working and, and supporting and providing software and data to organizations that don't go against that future that we're trying to build of inclusivity and, 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 and without glass ceilings, both again with, with technology, innovation, but also as, as, as human beings across this country and across the world, because democracy and, and humanity isn't just limited to the United States. So we really do work heavily on not just when we source opportunities and deals and our sales team and our marketing team, just going after every single opportunity or every single deal, or even when we have inbound interest, we always look at it through a values lens to make sure that we are, we're, we're adhering to this goal of the future that we're trying to build. Have you had to say no to anyone yet? Um, we have. Yeah, we've said, we've said no several times, both from seeing organizations violate our terms and conditions, which um, states some of this kind of values alignment, uh, but then also from inbound opportunities that have come up where organizations have requested demos. And, you know, we, again, we have we, our sales team um, and our sales reps will, will evaluate opportunities that come in and qualify them just like, just like you would qualify any opportunity at a, at a, at a enterprise, you know, at a B2B SaaS company. Part of the qualification is, is a quick, values check to make sure that there's not values misalignment and will disqualify opportunities, inbound opportunities. So um, we live this like seriously, we, we really do. The good news is, is that we still experience 3X year over year growth. Wow. Um, uh, regardless, even with, with this values lens. So we're not sacrificing growth. If anything, I think being values driven motivates the team, keeps everybody inspired. We live it every single day and people on our team and outside of our team see it every single day and it motivates them to, to keep their head down and keep working hard and keep sourcing deals and keep building software and keep writing and shipping code because we are true to our values. Wow, that is inspiring. You're selling a vision right there. You're saying the power of saying no means that people know what you really stand for and they're motivated to work towards that goal. Exactly. 
I like it. You mentioned earlier that your offsite process has changed since the pandemic and you're doing more remote. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you build a truly great remote culture. I know this is something you've written about and uh, spoken about at Yale Business School, perhaps other places. Yeah, so when we started the company, we didn't have in our mind that we would be a remote-only company. It wasn't until 2018 where we where we said it, right? When you say it out loud and you name it, it becomes a thing. So we said it out loud and we named it, and we said, you know, we're going to build this company remote-only, not you know, distributed where we have different offices. We said we're going to be remote only. So when we started hiring people, you know, we were really looking to to find people that had that could function and do well in a remote only environment. And then we started kind of building the infrastructure starting in 2018 to support a remote only workforce. So that was putting together kind of our, you know, starting with our employee guidebook and, and thinking about best practices, studying other remote companies that had scaled and seeing what we thought, what, peeling away things that we thought were really powerful from, from those companies and applying it to ours, but obviously with our own unique twist. And, you know, our company is founded by three Black people. So we have our own perspectives on, you know, how to show up at work and how to be true to yourself and bring your old self because we've experienced things in the workplace that we wanted to make sure did not exist in our workplace. So all of that kind of, all of that went into the pot to kind of figure out exactly the, the, the culture we were, we were building within a remote only company. Now, a lot of things have changed, We've, you know, as you grow from a, you know, three person company, founded company to, you know, seven people to, you know, 15 people to now we've got 22 people in the company. A lot of things have changed just year after year from 2018 to 2019, from 2019 to 20, obviously the pandemic hit in 2020. And we've had to really think about, again, like, what does this mean to be a remote, a scaling remote only company? So, you know, a few things that, that, that we did even before the pandemic, right, is we realized that being remote only did not mean saving money, right? I think people have a better understanding of that now, but we really thought and understood that in 2019, where we said we're not saving money, we're redistributing money, right? We were not saving money on on office space or anything like that and getting to bank that. We're really, what we're really saying is we're, re, we're redistributing it to, to support a remote-only environment. Um, so we put that money towards offsites. We put that money towards providing uh, people with the, with the tools that they needed to work from home or to get co-working space, right? Desk co-working space, for example, to support uh, remote and virtual social events. So we were doing kind of these remote social events on our own. Um, before kind of the rise of, of social virtual events, you know, post-pandemic or, you know, in the middle of this pandemic. Um, so a lot of work has went into, into thinking through what it means to be remote only for our company, while also making sure that it's something that is, that it's a company that's culturally inclusive. And again, that, that ties to the experiences that us as founders have had um, in, in the workforce before, before founding and, and starting Civic Eagle. Yeah, you talked about your co-founders wanting to bring your whole self to work. Can you say more about how you support that as a company? Yeah, so early on, we, we've had employee resource groups. So, I mean, usually you don't see ERGs until you're a you know, 100, 200 plus company because like an, an employee resource group is like one, like at a 15 person company could be one person, right? So we, early on, we had employee resource groups and, and instead of it being, instead of it being ERGs where it's just the same 
sorts of people in the employee resource group. So for example, like a black employee employee resource group, right? You see that a lot in, in major corporations. We would have employee resource groups, but then they would be focused on the identity or the person or the, the, the person that started it, but inclusive of other people to come and have conversations and learn and ask questions. So that was that was one thing that we that we did was basically say like, hey, if you are if you feel comfortable just kind of sharing your background and wanting to talk about things and be and, and and bring people into your world, you have the space to do that super early on. Another thing that that we've done is in the during the hiring process and also in our employee guidebook, um, we encourage people to list out all of their their holidays that they need, right? Um, their if they're religious holidays, cultural holidays, they immediately get to put that on their calendar. We don't just say, oh, only bank holidays or only major U.S. corporate holidays or whatever the case may be. Whatever you need to to celebrate yourself, to celebrate your religion, your culture, immediately, like that is that is yours. You don't ask permission for it. You put it on your calendar, and that is your time to observe those cultural and religious holidays for for you and, and your family. A couple other things that we've done is is have these conversations about is having like real conversations whenever things happen in the social fabric right and within the social context so we leaned into immediately like anything that was happening that needed a so that, that was happening in, in society that was you know moving around in the news or, or noteworthy um and that was permeating society we would immediately the next day have a town hall um, about that event we didn't run away from those things, like whether it was things that were that were impacting the Asian American community, the Black community, um, the LGBTQ plus community, so on and so forth. If something was happening that needed to, that we needed that, I felt like we needed to have a conversation about. Um, we had that conversation, or if somebody else in the in the company felt like the company needed to have a conversation about, we had a conversation about it. We did not run, and we do not run um, from those like things that are happening in society because it impacts, we are, we're, we're, it, again, it impacts humanity and it impacts the way that you show up for work. So running away from it when you're at work 10 hours a day, eight to 10 hours a day, doesn't do anybody any good, as opposed to making sure that you feel heard and that you feel like your team supports you and hears you and understands where you, like what you might be going through as an individual, what your family might be going through as an individual and within, and within the larger fabric of society. So those are the sorts of things that we wish we had when we were working in 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 you know bigger organizations or bigger companies before starting Civic Eagle, and and we counter those things, right? We 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 solve for those things in the company early on, and that's bled into the cultural fabric of our company. Where even as we scale, we believe that that inclusive environment will continue to exist. Thank you for sharing that. You also mentioned that remote work is not about saving money. I'm curious what you see as the benefits. Oh, I think the the number one benefit is is access to talent. You're able to hire from a broader talent pool, which is fantastic, right? And honestly, that to me, that, that I've realized that's the, the biggest benefit. If you're centrally located and you're requiring people to relocate to, you know, we're, we're headquartered, quote unquote, in in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. So we were requiring people to relocate to St. Paul, Minnesota, are only able to hire from this from the Twin Cities workforce. Um, that that significantly reduces our hiring pool. So. As a remote-only company and as a as a early stage, you know, fast-growing company, having access to a broader range of talent is really important, especially because of the complexity of the technology and the data that we're working with. We need that access to talent, so that's that's the primary benefit, in, in my opinion, especially as CEO and kind of the primary operator. I think there are some kind of secondary benefits that are more employee-specific, right, where they where folks are able to spend more time at home with their families. I recently got married. It's been great 
to be able to spend time with my wife. She's congratulations she's again. Thank you very much. She's fully remote as well. We plan on starting a family, you know, at some point in the near future, it'll be great to be able to, to, to build a family where, you know, you know, as, in, as just speaking for myself, where I'm not worried about going into the office every single day. And when I'm still able to be efficient and, and effective because of, you know, without having to worry about transportation. Um, and then there's externalities, right? Where, you know, you're, you're able to say people aren't jumping into gas guzzling cars and, and driving to work every day and congest and, and creating traffic congestions because they're working at home. So there's those, also the externality factors that play a role. So there's a lot of benefits to it. But again, as primary operator, looking at it from a business lens, access to a broader range of talent is incredibly impactful for an early stage company. And you have people from all over the country then? Yeah, so folks in New York, in the Bay Area, New Mexico, Minnesota, Atlanta, DC. One of our employees relocated to Taiwan uh, to be closer to his family. So now we have an employee in, in, in Taiwan. So yeah, folks are all over the place. Don't just listen, get engaged. I host a giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. What's a startup tech nonprofit, you ask? A startup is an organization seeking to grow that is new. Tech, meaning using software to scale with lower to zero marginal cost. And nonprofit, meaning organized as a public charity. So support innovation by seeding nonprofits leveraging technology to scale. Go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. I'm also curious, you mentioned your co-founders. What has it been like having friends as co-founders? <laughs> so those are my, those are my sisters. Those are, they're, 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 we're beyond friendship. And, you know, again, those, my two co-founders, um, two incredible black women, uh, incredibly accomplished black women have had my back. We've had each other's back for, for years now. And I think that the biggest thing is that we, we trust each other. They trust me. I trust them. And that makes a really positive working environment because we can be harsh with each other, can be hard on each other. And we, we, we all three of us know that it comes from a place of just wanting each other to get better, wanting the company to continue to grow and, and be better. And that trust is that we don't have to like read between the lines and, and like, you know, have hurt feelings or anything like that. Um, and I think that that's that, that that bond and that trust makes things run a lot faster, allows us to run faster. I can't imagine how founders work together that don't have that level of trust with each other. I, I, I can imagine, right? Because there's just so many things flying your way that if you do not trust completely your co-founders and their ability to execute and, and, and their belief in the mission and the vision and, and your and values and, and that partnership. I don't know how you do it, but for, but for, for me and, and for my co-founders, that trust and that belief in one another and our abilities and our skill sets, um, and also seeing us grow as operators over the last several years has been incredibly rewarding and has reflected in the growth of the business. Awesome. You know, as you were talking there, I was thinking about that book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. I think that's what it's called. And it has this model of vulnerability to build trust, which allows you to have the feedback and the kind of different viewpoints shared, which then allows you to have the clarity to drive accountability. And that's almost exactly what you just said. You, you laid out a very similar model of the power of having trust to eventually push you towards accountability. That's yeah. amazing to hear. Yeah, definitely. I have not read that book. That sounds like a, that an amazing book. I, I, I will. I just typed it up to, to look into it. But, um, but, I, but yeah, 100%. 
What have been some of the challenges as you've been growing the business? I mean, we could take up the, the last half hour of this conversation with uh, <laughs> <laughs> so many miles, so many, you know, obviously what, you know, there's the obvious ones we're in a pandemic and and there's, you know, problems with that, that everybody's experiencing. And, you know, I won't, I won't bore your audience with that. You know, I mentioned hiring is an access to talent is a pro of being remote only because you have a broader talent pool that you can kind of select from. Um, but hiring in general is really tough, right? Finding, making the right hire in a, in a quick kind of efficient way when you're early stages, it's been something that I, I completely underestimated. There is a lot that goes into sourcing, that goes into hiring and retention. It is expensive. My leadership team, they still individually contribute, right? So you're taking away time from their management of, of current employees, the, the contribution they have to do kind of to fill in gaps whenever things arise, uh, when they're doing, if they're doing any sort of, of, of sourcing, if they're doing, you know, if they're, if they're participating at a high level, or an in-depth level in the hiring process, right? Depending on the role. And sometimes you miss, right? You find you you hire people that that aren't the best fit for the job. And and then you have to start that process over again. So I think for 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 me and for the company right now, it has definitely been hiring and the cost of hiring and sometimes missing on hiring. I read a, a statistic where something like 50% of hires don't work out, but you only, but, but companies only end up firing like 10% of the 50% that are actually, that aren't actually working out or something like that at a, at an early stage company, you can't like, like you want a higher hit rate and you also have to fire fast when you realize that it's not working out because it's expensive to, and, and we're in such a high leverage um, situation. So, so I think that, yeah, that's been the biggest challenge. Other challenges that, and for your audience, if you, if you are kind of like get, jumping into entrepreneurship and building your own company, do not underestimate hiring, right? You raise your, 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 your seed round and you're going to jump in and you, you're hiring 10, 10 new people and, um, and you're excited about it. Do not underestimate it. Lean on your investors, lean on your board, maybe even like uh, hire a recruiter, right? Um, even if it's, you know, a, a contracted recruiter, um, but do not, as the primary operators of your business, do not underestimate the difficulties that come with finding the right talent for your company. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. There, there's a, a lot of other challenges, but that, I think that's the, the biggest one that, that has resonated with me over the last, you know, 18 months. Yes. Yeah, so you mentioned firing. How do you know when it's time? You know, <laughs> like you you the thing the thing is is that you know but then you don't and but then you don't want to admit it to yourself right and if you're not the du directly managing that person the person that is managing the person that needs to be fired they know right netflix has a great model let me not say a great model a model that i i find to be very interesting right when it comes to assessing performance right Basically, they ask the question, is this person like, how would you feel if this person wasn't here tomorrow? And if you would like lose your mind that that person wasn't here tomorrow, right, in your company, um, then obviously they're, you know, you want to re retain them. But if you're like indifferent and you don't really care, I mean, maybe maybe you should evaluate and, and, decide, and consider whether or not that person needs to go. Now, I think that's a, a bit aggressive. You know, obviously all, at, a, at an early stage company, you also want to, you know, kind of develop talent. Um, and nurture talent. And, and if you, especially if you see, you know, something in, in that person, but to go back to your question, like how, how do you, 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 you know, every entrepreneur, every founder, every people manager 
you know, and the thing that you that you gotta like, you know, be dedicated to doing for yourself and for your company is that once you know, do something about it. Put them on a performance improvement plan. Have a, a you know, have a um, a plan on on like you know if they do not execute on what you need them to do in this performance improvement plan, then you need to let them go and you need to part ways. Um, but once you know you know and do something about it. Don't second guess yourself. It goes back to that level of conviction and the information, the data, processing it, making a decision. Same thing, same sort of process when it comes to 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 um, to, to hiring and to retention and, and, and ultimately potentially firing somebody. Once you know, you know, you've got the information, you've got the data, but then it's up to you to do something about it not to second guess yourself. You were talking about a standard at Netflix, which is very high performance standard and expecting a lot from people in terms of output. And you were also talking about bringing your whole self to work. And I wonder if there's ever a tension in those two objectives where someone may hold back on admitting to some of the challenges they're having outside of work or mentioning things because they don't want to be seen as having any impediments to performing at a high level. Have you had any yeah. challenges with that? It, 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 there are challenges. One of our employees suffers from a lot of mental health issues and he's brought up to me, right? Like a, you know, we, one, we've created the environment where hopefully people feel like they can share that with their, their people manager or with me directly, right? If they're going through something with their family, with themselves, that type of thing. We, we've had people that have lost their, you know, their, their parents um, in the company that, that, again, that are suffering from, from mental health complexities. And there is rub there. There definitely is tension there, right? Of like, hey, this is something, there's something that is impacting me, that's impacting my family, that is therefore impacting my productivity at work, right? And my performance at work. So how do you balance those two things out? Well, one of our values is being people first, right? Uh, we have three values, transparency, audacity, and being people first. What the, there, is not, there is not a fourth value that is performance over everything or excellent performance over everything. That is not a value of ours, right? That people first is a value of ours. So making sure we live up to that value, create, an, create the, the, the culture and the space for people to, to share the things that are going on where they feel like um, it's important to, you know, to, to make sure that, that, that there's transparency around that so that we accurately are able to assess performance is, is important. And I think, honestly, that's, one of, that's going to be one of the challenges as we scale because there's, there's, there's an inherent trust in that. And because we're, we're, we're a small company from a headcount perspective, trust is, is more easily built than when you're a 100-person company or a 200-person company. And your people manager is not as kind of close to you as, as you would like, right? Like you're not spending as much time with that person. So making sure that that trust continues to exist, where people do feel like they can continue to bring their, their, their entire self and be transparent around things that might be impacting their performance. And then again, living up to our values of being people first is definitely something that I think a lot about as we, as we grow the company and continue to add headcount. But right now, at, at the size and the scale that we're at, there's sometimes friction there, but people have felt because of the culture that we've created, they have felt that they're that they can share that information with their people manager or with me directly or one of the other co-founders. And that for us, making sure that we're staying people first and not performance first, hearing to that makes it where I think people feel still feel good and, and we're still able to to 
um, to have excellent performance as a company as a whole. Yeah. And uh, tripling, as you said, in, in one year, that's great growth. It's great to hear about it. it must be exciting for investors and, you know, being an investor, I'm glad to hear that. I'm curious, what have you learned in your fundraising journey about how to fundraise? Well, one, it's, it's very difficult. I think the, the challenge is for most entrepreneurs that go out and raise is how do you balance articulating your vision, right? For the long-term with kind of the practicality and the evidence of what you've done so far, right? And kind of incrementally where you go the next year and the year after that. Because we all have this kind of really big vision, right? As entrepreneurs, as founders, you got this huge thing that you want to do, but you need that some evidence, right? Like what have you, like what have you done for like what have you done lately, right? And sometimes when you go into 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 a fundraise and you're and you're speaking to an investor, you're already up against it because you got a in a very concise short meeting, like thirty minutes, right? Usually, you've got to articulate what the market, the business opportunity the market size, what you've done, so some, you know, traction points, the vision, like all of these things have to go into an investor. You have to be able to articulate clearly, go into the investor's head. The investor then needs to go to their partners and upload that information to them for them to understand it, right? And basically playing a game of telephone because like you open everything you shared with that. And, and, it, and, and, and that balance of like clarity and being able to articulate like long-term vision with with like the traction and the evidence so far and and all these things it's it's tough and when you're in a in a market where it's not super like there's not a lot of investors out there that have a public policy data focus right or thesis right we're, we're b2b SaaS, and there's a lot of you know obviously a lot of investors in the b2b SaaS space so you know positioning that in big data space and positioning that and and like saying okay this is the 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 category within this space that you know that we're going after but uh but like you know it's it's tough so I, I think for for entrepreneurs for myself in particular that balance of hey this is the this is the big thing we're trying to do this is the big vision right this is really what we're going after this is really what we're we're attempting to do and balancing that with now here let me explain what we've done so far walking to that like running to that goal sprinting to that to that big vision it's tough because then they got to go back and, and say that exact same thing in, in hopefully a similar way to, to their partners and, and reach a point of conviction. And, and, you're, and not, it's not going to be for everybody. And understanding that and not taking it personal um, has been something that is tough for me, to be honest with you. I take a lot of things personal. I take everything personal. Um, <laughs> so, so also like understanding and realizing like don't take everything personal has been something that, uh, that, that is challenging. Um, but I, I think I've gotten better at so when you say take it personal, you mean if someone declines to invest, then it's a judgment on you as a person. Yeah, I mean my my, you know, excuse my language, but if somebody doesn't invest, I'm basically like fuck them. <laughs> I never want to talk to that person again. <laughs> so you know, that, and that's not the right attitude. There's a lot of things that go into a. a, a firm's decision not to invest, like the economics of the fund, you know, the, the investments they've already made, you know, you know, the speed in which they have to make a decision. Like there's a lot of, of, of factors and variables and it's not personal, but you know, a chip on your shoulder is never a bad thing either. So keeps me motivated, keeps me hungry, but, but yeah, that's what I mean by, by taking it personal is that it does feel like an indictment on, on you and your baby because your, your company is your baby. So it's like, you're calling my baby ugly. And my default reaction to that is, is, you know, F you. And that's another, that's a bigger chip. And that, that chip on my shoulder grows, which 
helps me. But uh, but also understanding that like it's not most of the time personal, and they're not calling your baby ugly. It's just you know you know there, there's there's different factors and variables at play. Yeah, I've certainly felt that as a founder that anger, and you can harness it. At the same time, I've had investors say no one round and invest in the next round. So you don't want to burn all the bridges. Yeah. And you can feel when it's a no forever and it's a, Hey, like we want to, we're really interested. It's, the, the timing is bad. Um, here, here are three things that we're hoping to see. Like, let's stay in touch. I want to help you and keep this relationship warm and that type of thing. Like there's a, there's a big, big difference. And you can tell as a, as a founder, like what that means. There's, there's a, Hey, we're, I'm not convicted that there's anything here at all. Right. And I don't believe in this thing. And you can tell when that's the case versus not right now and for X, Y, Z reason, but let's set up a recurring quarterly meeting or add me to your investor email update list or whatever the case may be, because that, that doesn't feel like a no, that feels like a, I'm not quite ready for this right now because, you know, and then that type of thing. But if it's just a no, oh no, it's a, if it's just a straight up no, and I can tell that it's definitely, you know, I'm not going to try to raise from that investor again, right? I'm not going to reach out to that investor again. I'm not going to look for a yes later on, right? Um, you know, it's it's move on and um, and wish each other best of luck in, in, in endeavors. <laughs> right, okay. I mean, I think we do have some investors who listen to the show and I think that's good advice for them about if you do want to leave the door open, make sure that founders understand that. Uh, that's, yeah. it's a... As an investor myself, you know, you know, I've seen it from both sides of the table. Saying no is tricky. And there are plenty of investors who don't know how to do it. You want it to be final enough for this round so you don't have to revisit it. But yeah, sometimes you want to leave the door open for future round with different dynamics, different, uh, you know, scale size of the company or certain risks being reduced. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And the best investors that have said no, but I really feel good about keeping the door open. They tell you the reason why it's a no now and what it would take to get to a yes later. Right. So, Hey, the, the timing isn't right for this right now for us and for our firm because of X, Y, Z, because of the economics, because we had, we, we couldn't reach a point of conviction with the partners because we want to see a little bit more evidence on the, on the, you know, enterprise side of the business because, you know, we're really looking for that 500K and ARR threshold or whatever the case may be. There's a reason for the no, right? And there's information in there that you can, that you can learn from and, and kind of add to your, to your, you know, your, your pile of information and data as an entrepreneur, because all that is, is important is you want to go back out to the market again or raise for another investor, you know, or raise from another investor. And then understanding like, okay, well, what we want to do is like, what is the next step? Like, would love to stay in touch and connect quarterly, you know, I can already, I'm going to add my admin to this email. So she can set, so if you're open to setting something up for, you know, March of next year, just to touch base and see if there's anything that I can do to help. In the meantime, if there's anything I can do to help any interest I can make, please let me know. Right. Like those are, those are the dopest, dopest, dopest no's because they're still there to help. You feel like they believe in what you're doing. There's just, it's just, you know, there's just some things that they're trying to figure out to de-risk it or whatever the case may be versus a, you know, radio silence or you know the worst you know the absolute worst just absolutely just a no right those are those are the absolute like yeah i'm never i don't i have no interest in talking to that person or that firm ever again yeah radio silence i mean i've probably done it to someone and and i apologize but being (laughs) on the founder side like it's it feels horrible 
And if you've really engaged, it, it's really feels rude. Um, if you yeah. had a conversation and then you're, you're not willing to follow through and give that no. It's, it's borderline disrespectful. And I will say that, you know, through the lens of a black founder, sometimes it makes me question, like, would you do this to a, you know, 45 year old white guy from Harvard? Right. Well, so, I didn't go to Harvard, but I've certainly had people <laughs> ghost me. All right. All right. But, and, and that, and that's fair, but like, it makes you question that, right. It makes you kind sure, of feel, sure. feel a certain way. Like, huh? Like, like, would you, would you do this to somebody that didn't look like me? Right. And obviously the answer is yes. Like sometimes it happens, but I, like, you know, you, the question still remains that the, you know, the rate of sometimes that ghosting happens. Uh, so it doesn't, yeah, it feels icky and it feels disrespectful. And yeah. So message for the investors that are listening out there. If you're, if you're highly engaged with a founder or not, you know, a company, you know, have, have a little bit of tact and, 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 and mistakes happen and you can drop the ball sometimes, of course, but like, you know, be intentional around, like they put in work to, to, you know, share their, their company with you and their baby with you, please have the same level of respect and just, you know, like don't radio, don't, don't ghost them. Don't radio silence them. You've shared a lot of good advice for founders now giving advice to investors. I love it. Anything else you'd like to share about the company or advice for founders before we wrap up? Well, I'll say this for founders, I highly relationships are really, really important. Relationships with, you know, the people that support you early on, like family and friends, your co-founders with investors that you meet at random places, events, to your customers. If you're if you're the primary operator, operators of your company, double down and invest in those relationships. You know, if so, if, if there's somebody that you've been you've been meeting, you keep telling yourself, hey. Uh, I've been meaning to contact this person and then time, keep, time keeps going back, keeps going by and you haven't just send them an email, right? Just check in, share an update, but the relationships that you, there are some customers that we, that we have right now. And I've been building a relationship with them for easily two years. And they finally were like, you know, the, let, let's do this. Let's do this deal. Like in the middle of this conversation, I got an email from a corporate customer saying like, Hey, we're in. Um, send us the service agreement. And I've been working this, this, this opportunity for like 18 months, not like a sales, but just like relationship building. So just, just as founders, like just really focus and, and, and be intentional about building genuine, authentic relationships um, with all of all the different types of stakeholders that, that, you know, that, that you, um, that are in your, in your world and, and especially in the, the orbit of your business. Yeah. So I'll leave it at that. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. What are the ways that people can find out more about the company or you follow you online? I am not super active. I'm not, I am not active on social media. <laughs> Please just feel free to visit our website, civiceagle.com, C-I-V-I-C-E-A-G-L-E.com. You can also, if you, if anybody wants to, to have a conversation, feel free to email me, Damola, D-A-M-O-L-A at civiceagle.com. Um, that's the best and easiest way to reach out to me. If you send me a message on Twitter, I, I may see it. And my Twitter handle is at D-A-M-O-L-A-O-G-U-N-D-I-P-E, Damola Ogundepe. But uh, it was great uh, being part of this conversation. Thanks for having me, Miles. And for the audience, feel free to reach out to me. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Reviews really do help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and you can follow me on LinkedIn. 
If you are inspired today and want to join our giving circle, please do so on our website, startupsforgood.com. Thank you.